Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Hi, I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné. I am a board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, board-certified in uh, foot surgery, reconstructive rear foot and ankle surgery, and in wound management. Uh, I'm also the uh, medical director for a local wound center, and I spend most of my days treating peripheral nerve problems and diabetic limb salvage. So we're trying to prevent amputations in diabetic patients. I am from... Uh, Indiana, but I moved here in 1981 to Texas. So I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could. Uh, I've lived here in the Dallas Metroplex area since 1999. So I've been in practice for about 24 years and uh, enjoy uh, living and working here in the Denton area. And I have uh, a partner, Dr. Hussein, who has been with us for three years already, which yeah. is amazing. So I'm going to uh, let him introduce himself here as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Hussein. Um, went to uh, undergrad at University of Hartford, uh, three years uh, med school, NYCPM up in New York, originally from New York. So it's kind of hometown. It was nice. I did my residency at Universal General Hospital in uh, Houston, first two years. My last year at the, at the VA uh, in Stony Brook up in Long Island. I did my fellowship at UPenn um, with Dr. Malay. My specialties, I guess, would say sports medicine and flat foot recon. That's kind of my uh, favorite stuff. Truly enjoy doing it. And I honestly, I love teaching you guys. If you guys have any um, topics or anything that you guys want us to go over or discuss, by all means, we're, we're all here to, um, to gain some more knowledge. I, he's being a little modest. He's also a very talented uh, joint replacement surgeon when it comes to ankle replacements. Uh, so Dr. Hussein heads up our total ankle program and has done a wonderful job with uh, those specific cases. As far as my residency is concerned, I didn't even bring it up because it's like 25 years ago and I almost forgot about it. But I will talk a little bit about that. So I went to Notre Dame undergrad uh, and then... Uh, the Shoal College of Podiatric Medicine in Chicago. 
and then spent a year uh, doing reconstructive foot and ankle surgery at Western Medical Center in Southern California. Unfortunately, that program is is no longer, it's sort of melded into another program down there, but the hospital th- doesn't exist anymore. Um, it's what happens when you get old, they start tearing down your hospitals. And then I spent two years uh, doing additional foot and ankle reconstructive training at DePaul Health Center in St. Louis, uh, and then I was recruited uh, to join the uh, medical staff at HCA Louisville, which is now Medical City Louisville. You got to tell them about your training in frames. I, I did a mini fellowship in uh, in Kurgan, Russia, which is in Western Siberia, uh, with the Ilzarov uh, Center for Restorative Traumatology and Orthopedics. Like the original people that made this. I mean, they had all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, Ilzaroff was uh, one of the, uh, let's say he's one of the populators of X-Fix. He didn't invent it, but he he really helped develop its uh, use in multiple different aspects of reconstructive surgery, both upper and lower extremity. And so I spent a couple months out there with those folks uh, trying to understand how they used it and really... uh, was impressed with the the way that they used it as more of an art form than really a dogmatic form of of medicine that that I kind of expected. So, yeah, it was a great great couple months out there. We did external fixation six days a week on everything you can think of. So it was a, it was a great great experience. Yeah, Doctor D heads all of our frame cases here. By all means, if you ever get a chance of walking to his office, it's like. 10, 15 frames just sitting up yeah. there aside from whatever is scattered throughout our, our, uh, our clinic. <laughs> we hang up, we hang on to them uh, so that we've got spare parts because uh, unfortunately sometimes things break and uh, we, we need to do adjustments here in the office. But um, yeah, if you have interest in external fixation, we've got a couple of shows that we've done on it and um, it is a, a part of our limb salvage program. So that's kind of us in a nutshell uh, as an update. I don't think we've done that in in a while. We've been doing this podcast since 2020. And we're up 50, uh, 60 episodes yeah. in now. So we try to get one out every couple of weeks. Uh, depends on our schedules, but I think we've been fairly consistent with that. Um, and we hope you guys are enjoying the content. And if again, if you, have, if you have suggestions of what you want to hear more about or deeper dives into particular aspects of foot and ankle surgery, we'd be glad to do it. And today on The Pod Doctors, we are going to delve into a subject which can scare people, uh, gangrene. What is it? Yeah, you know, there's a couple different versions. You can have wet gangrene, which can be really serious and and, uh, can require surgery. And then it can be dry gangrene, which is usually more related to vascular problems or blood flow problems. So I'm sure we'll get into that. I want to steal your thunder here, Dr. Hussein. Well, no, 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 that's perfect. So let's dive into what typically happens. Patients come in and they're like, all right, my foot's discolored. My skin is dry. I have swelling, tingling, pain. Sometimes there might be pus-filled lesions. Obviously, when we're visually looking at it, you see that darkening, the discoloring. The temperature is typically cool to the touch unless it's angry and inflamed. So we're trying to determine if it's something emergent versus something that we can take care of conservatively. And that's kind of our, our you'll see the premise of the different types of gangrene here. Good example is the distal tips of the toes, obviously purple, red, black, even um, shiny skin. Sometimes it can be foul smelling and that's what it's more concerned about infection. Yeah, that I would call that 
probably more wet gangrene. Yeah, wet yeah, or gas so, even, yeah. And that, that's a surgical emergency. So, you know, most common cause of gangrene is, and we'll dive into them, uh, diabetes, peripheral arterial disease, and trauma. That's probably say those three are probably the biggest factors on our things, but these are the most common causes, diabetes, atherosclerosis, peripheral arterial disease, Raynaud, smoking, tisk-tisk, uh, no smoking, infection, post-surgical, severe frostbite. Luckily in Texas, we don't see that kind of stuff, but I'm sure in the northern states, you can definitely see quite a bit more of that. And then immunosuppressed. Some of the stuff that they're not adding in here would probably be like perennial chill glands, which kind of is a different type of Raynaud's sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. Very common to get. And I think some of these, the, the list of quote unquote causes of gangrene, when you're a smoker and you also have diabetes. It stacks. Yeah, you're just stacking problems that are, that are going to affect your peripheral uh, arterial system. The arteries are the, the plumbing that delivers oxygenated blood to your tissues. And anything that you're doing that's making it easier for you to lay plaque down and clog these arteries up is potentially going to lead to this. The other thing that can lead to issues with dry gangrene in the extremities, in the lower extremities particularly, would be anybody who's had uh, surgery, um, cardiothoracic surgery, uh, who may have had a clot break off and have that end up uh, flowing through the arterial system into a a distal branch or a small branch of the toes and cause a toe to, to become blue and then maybe even, and maybe even become black. Yeah. It's like back in the day when, you know, when you're a kid, you put rubber band around your finger and you're like, all right, it's fine for like a minute or two. And then after a couple (laughs) minutes, you're like, God, this is killing me. That's exactly what you're doing. You're cutting off that blood flow. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's, that's the absolute term for ischemia. And that ischemic pain is gnawing. It's deep. It's, it's not responsive to narcotics you know, the only thing that's going to fix it is, unfortunately, amputation or, or fix the blood flow problem. Yeah. But in your picture there with the hand gangrene, that's that's severe. You wonder if that was, you know, vasopressors a, a from ICU. Vasopress- yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. What, that, what, what's the one that we like? Uh, leave a fed is the <laughs> classic one. We used to just call it leave them dead. Yeah. You literally will uh, see the distal tips yeah. system, uh, symmetrically on the mm-hmm. tips of the fingers and the tips of the toes and those are the people that were in severe ICU and they needed those vasopressors to pull the blood flow to right. more important organs. So obviously the tips of your fingers are less important. It, it's a, you know, it's kind of a last resort. Yeah, uh, but full emergency. Yeah, this is this is trying to save somebody's life. And I've had several patients who've re- rebounded from that. Yep. They, they lost tissue, but they didn't lose toes over it. Yep. And, and it saved their life and they were able to get revascularized or whatever was necessary for the cardiothoracic function. But yeah, it's it, when you have a situation like this, though, it's it's not like uh, Lazarus is going to come back from the dead. Yeah, this is going to require some form of, of amputation. So Dr. D already touched on this. There's two or three different types of gangrene, depending on whatever classification system that you align with. There are pretty much dry gangrene, wet gangrene and gas gangrene. So dry gangrene is your less emergent type of gangrene. That is the one that People will talk about it auto amputated. It's it's like stiff, like um. It's almost like those? a it's like a raisin. The thing is shriveled up. It's like a hard raisin. Yeah. What, what are those uh? What are those uh? Orange uh, Cheetos. I swear it it's looks like, like a, a Cheeto. Cheeto to me. A black Cheeto. Yeah, like a black Cheeto. <laughs> so it's dry. It's crispy. It's it's See, surgeons hard. Are always we always relay things back to food, and, <laughs> and it's because most of the time we're hungry. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. 
So most common cause for dry gangrene is peripheral arterial disease, some type of occlusion, some type of uh, um, peripheral arterial spasmodic event, diabetes, smoking, all of the above that we talked about. And a lot of the times we treat these conservatively. Now let's get more to the surgical side of things. Wet gangrene and gas gangrene. Wet gangrene is, I don't know, more... And there's urgent. more an infectious. Yeah, there's yeah. More, more of an infectious component to it. Um, and I think that's why gas gangrene is... I don't think it's a separate category. It's yeah, really so a subcategory. It's just a more gangrene. extreme version, honestly. Yeah. So gas gangrene, I don't know, a lot of people that separate into different categories, and I put it in there for, as a separate category. They typically talk about clostridium or non-clostridium gas gangrene. Mm -hmm. Clostridium perfringens is the bacteria which causes the gas typically associated with gas gangrene. There's other ones like, I think like beta hemolytic strep. There's a lot of them. If you want to dive into them, I'm sure you can do a quick Google search. But as far as the infection goes, these are pretty urgent. You want to go in, you want to wash these out, you want to get IV antibiotic therapy, and you want to get rid of any on all dead tissue. And most of the times these are like sequential washouts. And You're not just doing one done. Sometimes you have to go in and do it a couple times. And gas gangrene is a slam dunk indication for hyperbaric oxygen. Oh therapy. yeah. Any gangrene actually, I think. Yeah. Well, yes, potentially the, even so the diabetic patient with the necrotic toe yeah. would be considered a Wagner, uh, five. Four, four, four or five. Or, yeah. And, and so that would be, uh, potentially an indication for hyperbaric oxygen therapy as an adjunct to the surgical care that's going to be required. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these, these wet and gas gangrenes, gas, especially you can smell them right when you walk past the room. I will, I, I swear if I'm walking into hospital room and they consulted me on a patient who has an you ulcer, know. you're like, yeah, this guy definitely has gas gangrene. I go see the patient. You know, obviously there's crepitation and stuff on him. And then the x-rays, I mean, you'll you'll see the gas bubbles you, on the x-rays. You've had a couple of these in the last several weeks. I have a, a case that we'll, yeah. we'll probably go through. Okay, good. So blood flow. Blood flow is very important. We work very closely with our vascular docs for these type of cases. They're going to go in. They're going to try to open up the vessels. The most common occlusion sites, I would say, are probably the popliteal. Yeah, the, behind uh, the, the knee. Yeah, the vessel behind the knee, and it's where it flexes. And then it has three branches that it goes into, the posterior tib, the anterior tib, and your peroneal artery. The problem is, I had a vascular surgeon tell me this, it's whenever they branch off, the diameter of the vessel, they go half the size. So if it's, say, one centimeter diameter, it's then it went branches, it goes to five centimeters, roughly, rough estimate. But every time it branches, it's also another area on where you have turbulence and that plaque can occlude. Right. So sometimes when we have ulcers on different parts of the body, so, you know, if I have a, an ulcer on the big toe, I'm thinking more the lines of, you know, um, anterior tibial or posterior tibial artery, depending on the branch and the area of the sore, that it might be more related to that artery. And obviously when the vascular doctor does his test, the ultrasound, the angiogram, they can specifically find out what branch it is and go in, hopefully, open it up. Yeah, so if they if your ulcer is on the gray toe and they open up the the lateral aspect of the foot, it's it's not necessarily going to help your wound. Yeah. So you've got to work closely with your vascular folks to make sure that um, they understand where the wound is. Uh, hopefully they're looking at it. Yeah. But oftentimes if they're going endovascular, they may not be taking the dressing down. Yeah. So they need to understand where the wound is so that they can identify which vessels are going to be most helpful at restoring flow to that wound bed. Yeah, I literally spoke to two different vascular docs this morning, Dr. Cruz and Dr. Bahara this mm -hmm. morning, and both are really great, so. All right, 
dry gangrene. So what it looks like. Dried up Cheetos, burnt. I don't know. What is it? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm just getting into I'm hungry. Uh, what is that? Uh, uh, burnt tips for when you do. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Steak. Smokes. Yeah, smoking. <laughs> Whatever. All right. So dry. It's uh, you, When you touch it, it's very, very tough. Sometimes superficial eschars. We don't realize that they're actually superficial type of dry gangrene, typically, mm-hmm. as long as they're hard and not boggy. Here, this is a one from most likely from the vasopressors, probably right. an ICU patient that had um, some type of uh, severe problem. Most they likely. They needed to um, you know, put on vasopressors, pull that blood flow back to his important organs, and then these will hopefully you know, survive, but commonly they'll auto-amputate or have to get amputated in the future. All right, so we get our imaging, right? So you'll see some washing out of those areas. Obviously, if you have poor blood flow, you'll see that um, loss of bone. We'll see calcification. There's a full classification system on uh, peripheral arterial disease based on x-ray findings for calcification. Commonly in our office, we'll get ABIs. ABIs are very good. ABIs and TBIs. ABIs, you want it to be at least 0.8 or above, and TBIs, 0.4 or above, or 0.6, depending on who you read. And um, So that's... that's- uh, comparing it to your brachial, your, your art, yeah, your arterial uh, pressures in the arm to the to the ankle. Yeah, and then a lot of times we'll get uh, angiograms. The vascular doctors, not us. The angiograms will be done, and they'll, if needed, do what's called an angioplasty, where they go in and rotor rooter those vessels. You know, our vascular doctors quite often will just literally send us a picture of before and after. It's always kind of fun to look at, and um, be like, hey, blah blah blah, patient had this type of procedure done, here's kind of the before and after. Ideally, he should have more than enough blood flow to heal, so we know that we're working with something good here. So one of the things to keep in mind about ABI's ankle brachial index is it can be falsely elevated in diabetic patients. Or anyone who has calcification. Exactly. Uh, Anybody who's got the railroad track sign, um, you may have a rosy picture with your ABI that's not telling you the full picture because the, the vessel is calcified, it can't be compressed, so your values are going to be higher, mm-hmm. indicating potentially a normality there. But if they're yeah. 1.3 or anything, 1.4, yeah. then that they're beyond the normal pressures, and we know that those values are really useless. Yeah, they get calcification. That they have three layers on the blood vessel, the in, uh, indigo media. The calcification, Muckenberg's calcification, it literally, it's like when you send an ultrasound into the water and you're looking for something hard, the calcification will echo back stronger than a soft vessel would. So sometimes we'll get what's called transcutaneous oximetry, and it's a little bit more accurate because you can pinpoint it to different parts of the the wound site or the foot, and you can get more accurate readings on a uh, specific level versus, you know, doing a full ankle, full toe, arm. Uh, well, that, yeah, and that's that's reading. Those are oxygen sensors. Yeah, those little blue sensors, and they're actually reading oxygen coming out of the skin, mm-hmm. which isn't going to be affected by the compressibility of a blood vessel. Yeah, so and we want to see important. good oxygen flow down there. So there's a bunch of studies that show with hyperbarics before and after how much of a difference it makes. Right, and, and if you're doing that in the chamber, it's really it's fascinating. Yeah, the other thing you can do when you're doing these outside the chamber is you can have the patient elevate their leg to 45 degrees. And when you see that that oxygen level drop off the table, like literally just thunk, uh, that's an indication that you have large vessel disease. And so you've got blockages in the bigger vessels up the leg. And those are easier to treat than small vessel disease, which, yeah. you know, is really gets, you get diminishing returns trying to 
uh, open up these small vessels. It's just not possible for most most of those vessels in the in the forefoot. It kind of goes back to when we talked about in one of our previous episodes, the perforator disease patient that comes in and they say their limb feels better when they hang it off the edge of the bed or when they sit in, an, in a chair where the foot feels good. But when they sleep at nighttime, they start having pain and, yeah. and you know, like you have to kind of Rest hang pain, the foot. Night yeah. pain, yeah, that's a bad, bad sign. Yeah. That's telling you that someone's got pretty significant ischemia. So oh, we talked about auto amputations. I actually had a patient back when I... Uh, Back when I was in med school, we did a free clinic out of uh, NYCPM, and we had a patient who who took his sock off, and uh, lo and behold, lo and behold, he was like, oh, "We're doing you know wound care and whatever." And I'm like, "All right, hey, okay, one of your toes is missing." And they're like, "When did this go?" They're like, "What? No." I'm like, "One, two, three, four, and lo and behold, it was in his sock." Yep. Well, this guy with the with the uh, the fingertip that he can just pop on and off, you know. You go up to the guy next to you in the next room and you're like, hey, bitch, can't do this. Magic tricks. Um, that's, yeah, that's rough. So what happens is your body will do what's called um, line of demarcation, where the blood flow coming to that site, that distal end, will be all healthy, viable, and everything distal to it will start eroding away. I don't know what a better term for that is. But the body will let that flake off like a scab, and underneath it, it will heal. Uh, Commonly, there'll be like a little sore in the center and, and that'll heal over time as long as we're making sure it stays clean and uninfected and whatever other modalities we're doing, hyperbarics, you know, vascular, etc., topical oxygen, I don't know. Um, but as long as we keep it clean and uninfected, they will heal up. And it has happened, you know, a couple times here and there in clinic, like I said. I think um, we're I, I largely... The only time I'm letting this get to this stage where things are auto-amputating is in the patient who is either not a surgical candidate for yeah. revascularization. And so the vascular guys have said, hey, look, there's really nothing we can do to make this better. Because you clearly don't want to get aggressive with debridements in those cases because you're just going to make a wound that isn't going to heal. So I, I would say that's the right thing to do. If they've been vascularized and you've let it demarcate, then I think you could go ahead and do Faster reasonable uh, amputation sites that are just proximal to that, that are yeah. going to heal. And then they're going to be back in protective shoe gear faster and hopefully a better long-term solution yeah, 100%. than just letting these auto-amputate over the course of months because it can take months. Oh. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. So wet gangrene. So we'll dive into this. Line of demarcation is absent between there. It's typically boggy, very um, uh, soft and, and um, I don't know, almost like a, a beanbag. You know, there's there's so much extra fluid in there. Obviously, malodor. And we're like, all right, look, you have to go in. We have to get this taken care of. There's no, there's no reason for this to not be taken care of uh, surgically. Yeah, th this is the, literally the byproducts of the infectious process are exacerbating this. They're making more tissue die. Yeah, the blood and, flow is limited yeah, yeah. and bacteria are coming in and they're eating away all that dead you, tissue. You've got to open these up, drain them, and, and then, you know, if you can, get the patient into hyperbarics. Uh, for sure. So, just like I said, wet gangrene, gas gangrene, this they're is, about the same thing. This is but limb threatened situation. This is limb and life threatening, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, typically, they'll come in with a, a you know gangrenous toe, and there'll be severe malodor, drainage, and um, you're you're looking at something that we're like, all right, stop, clean this up, wrap this up. You're going to the ER. We're sending you, you know, to the ER, and we got to get this taken care of ASAP. This is something that you do not play around with. 
when we get our imaging, you'll see that there'll be bubbles underneath the tissue. There Most commonly, we don't get MRIs or anything on these type of things because obviously we can see it on x-rays here. Um, and you can see these, um, uh, it's called uh, subcutaneous emphysema, and these little gas bubbles underneath the tissue. So when you see stuff like this, you have to open it up to this extent. So you're literally opening up to that area and washing it out mm -hmm. to get any infection out of there. So, Yeah, this, this is uh, mul usually multiple surgeries oh, yeah. to try to clean this up. You'll see oftentimes tremendous muscle necrosis with these. So all that muscle needs to go. It's not coming back. Uh, anything that is soupy and, and uh, uh, just really um, unusual looking needs to go in most of these cases. Yeah. But yeah, this is a multiple washout situation. So patient comes in with, you know, some type of gangrene, hopefully on the drier side. Uh, typically, we'll do some type of antimicrobial agent. I like to use betadine. Some people do Dakin's, Vosh, your Meparison, Santos, if need to soften up the SCAR. We'll try to get some type of vascular involvement because, like I said, most of the time these are vascularly um, induced. So patients may need some angioplasty or even a bypass. And then hyperbarics, I think, is a slam dunk on these type of patients. Um, they need that blood flow. The large vessels are occluded, so we really want to get those small vessels, those little tiny bridges that are coming to the skin and the wound. We want those to be saturated with as much oxygen as we can to get these to heal up. And, the, and this is a team approach. Like, oh yeah. In the, in the wet gangrene, the gas gangrene, the first thing you got to do is take them to the OR and clean that up. Yep. But then the very next thing that has to happen is they need a vascular consult. If there is something that needs to be done, then it can be done safely because you've cleaned up the infection, they're yeah. on antibiotics. Infectious disease yeah. involved, wound culture and surgery. Yeah, this is like, uh, this take, takes a village for sure yeah. um, to get these folks back to a point where you can save their limb. Yeah, now when patients come in with dry gangrene, a lot of times we'll use betadine. Betadine is a drying agent, it's a liquid, it's the gold standard for any type of open wound. And I swear it's like Frank's Red Hots, I put that on everything. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite things. I have a patient right now, we had a toe amputation on him, and we're doing a little packing with Idaform and a splash of iodine, and things is shrinking away. It's, um, it's cytotoxic, so once things kind of calm down as far as infection, we'll use something different, but in the initial stages, definitely something. Yeah, um, I think in the initial stages, it works great, but yeah. yeah, chronic use can actually inhibit wound healing. 100%. Yeah, along with you know, hydrogen peroxide is another. Yeah, another yeah. Hydrogen, I swear hydrogen peroxide is so overused. So this is great. You got uh, antibiotic beads. Yeah, these are really helpful for, yep. for some of these deep space wounds. And then the vac. Oh, my gosh. I just, I used to joke, you know, if you took the vac away and hyperbarics, I wouldn't know what to do with these cases. Yeah. Because we rely on both so heavily. So antibiotic beads. So what these are, are um, there's two types. There's absorbable and non-absorbable. These are probably absorbable. These are most likely non-absorbable. And what they do is we put like tobramycin, vancomycin, or gentamicin typically in with these. And what happens is during the aftermath of surgery, during the recovery process, you'll have leaching away of that vancomycin or whatever you're using, the antibiotic, into that area and they estimate it's almost a 5,000% increase versus IV antibiotic therapy to that localized area. So we're literally flushing that out with as much antibiotic solution as we can. Typically, you can kind of see this is on a, a string. We'll put them and make a little bracelets or a, a string of beads, you know, and mm -hmm. we'll pull these out after surgery, the non-absorbable. 
Uh, you can leave them in there indefinitely also. So a the, lot of times we'll use them as spacers. The non-absorbable is usually methyl methacrylate, so that's bone cement. The, yeah. the absorbable is usually calcium sulfate. Yeah. And those will break down. You don't have to usually you don't typically have to take those out. Yeah. The only downside with those is they, they cause an inflammatory response. And they and drain for drain. Yes, yes. They drain for a lot longer. Yep. So I tell patients up front, do not be surprised for the next month or so you're gonna get some drainage, excess drainage out of there. We'll keep an eye on it. And we usually if, tack that closed a little bit. Yeah, I'll I'll, yeah. I'll leave like ninety percent closed with a small pocket. Yeah. And I'll typically use some type of packing like Idaform to make sure that the tunnel from the beads to the um, open incision site is open continuously yep. because you don't want that to close off and then abscess and whatnot. Right. And then you've got the uh, Pulsivage on there too, yeah, which is I nice. I use that in any infection. Yeah. I know Dr. D uses it yep. all the time. Love it. So it's a, I don't know, water jet type of... Um, it's like a big squirt gun. I Honestly. And, and we found out because we used to put antibiotic solution and you can still put antibiotic solution in there. And we, we found out that um, it's literally the act of high pressure washing out and it has a suction on it. So it literally sprays out from the it's rim. Knocking bacteria off tissue and yeah. then sucking it out. Yep, and it, yeah. it pulls out all that drainage and whatnot. And we'll use, depending on how big it is, 1,000 cc versus 3,000 cc liter of saline or lactate ringers or whatever you want to use. I'm still old school. I still do 80 milligrams of gent per liter. So Yeah, I'll, and yeah. all you're doing is just fighting as much healing potential for this wound. And we found out that when you do these pulsolage, that suction effect actually causes promotes granulation. So we're doing twofold on uh, on doing that. So you double whammy it by then putting the vac dressing in place. Yep. So. And then you're getting this this tug and pull in the tissues and vigorous granulation, which is yep. awesome. Yeah. So the wound vac is a vacuum. We've talked about this previously on our on our wounds episode, but it's a negative pressure vacuum that we cover the wound with, and we use different types of sponges depending on how much bone exposure, tendon exposure, pocketing, etc. But that sponge provides equal pull along the wound surface, pulling all that excess drainage, promoting angiogenesis, the small vessel formation, mm -hmm. and granulation, that beefy red tissue, to that wound site and or amputation site. And it just seals it off. Yeah. You know, it just it's great for deep space wounds. Yep. If you want to fill in from the bottom up, mm -hmm. you don't want those edges to close up. You want right. that bottom up closure for wounds. All right, so different types of amputation. So this is something, it's, it's difficult um, to determine what specific amputation is the gold standard, but these are the different types of amputations that we go into and we try to remodel the foot as best as we can as something more functional versus just kind of chopping and, and uh, you know. Expecting the best. Yeah. yeah, so there's different types of amputations. There's what's called a distal slimes or a partial toe amputation. Sometimes we'll do a MPJ amputation at the um, metatarsal phalangeal joint. Sometimes we'll do what's called a transmet amputation where you're literally coming across these metatarsals. And sometimes we'll have to do a revision afterwards and do like a balancing act to make sure that the tendon isn't pulling because the way that the foot is structured, when you take an amputation of the transmet, you're literally raising this bone up and leaving this one low. So a lot of times you'll get what's called a transfer lesion under the, uh, the fifth metatarsal. We'll do what's called a Lace Franks amputation at the metatarsal cuneiform joint and a Schuparts amputation at the tarsal, um, at the, I don't know, your uh, Taylor uh, navicular joint. We don't really do those too often. Same thing with Symes. We don't do those too often because the success rate on those are very low and the weight-bearing surface is... The, the show part amps, the success rate is is reasonable when you do a TAF, when you lengthen the Achilles yeah. and you do a tendon transfer. 
If you take the tibialis anterior tendon and you attach it into the neck of the talus so they have some dorsiflexion, they work great. So in, in my hands, I've used them routinely throughout the last 24 years. Uh, what about necessary. I've never done one. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done one. I don't think I've ever even seen one. They're, they're not a great amputation. I think patients would probably be better off with a BK and, and oh, yeah. a good a good prosthesis at that point. Yeah, the problem with the Symes amputation or proximal Symes, whatever you want to call it, is that there's no good weight-bearing surface. There's no muscle you can flap yeah. around. There's no fatty deposit, no fatty tissue on the bottom. There's no good surface for so weight the, bear on. The ones in the middle there, those look all like Chopard. Uh, so you've got a heel. Oh, yeah. 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 And they, they typically do better when you lengthen the Achilles and you do the tendon transfer. Otherwise, they contract, yeah. and then they, they're weight-bearing on the end of the talus, which causes another ulcer. So if you do the tendon balancing, see, I don't know about you guys, but in residency, our, our senior residents were the ones who did these major amps because they're complex. Yeah. The tendon balancing required in doing them right is complex. It's not just taking a guillotine and go, you know, you... That's the approach, I think, of other specialties who do AMPs traumatically. Yeah. And um, they're not necessarily worried about the long-term functionality of the limb. Yeah. We're worried about the long-term functionality of the limb, trying to prevent further amputations, further wounds for these patients. And so we've got to really rethink the way we do these. And if you don't do tendon balancing with these, you're you're just dooming the patient to another yeah. procedure later on down the line. And there's a lot of plastics, too, when you're doing these. Oh, a yeah. lot of skin rotation, a lot of mm -hmm. flaps. So we're working with something that looks like this. In the end, you want it to heal up yep. without any type of problem. That's a beautiful transmet right there. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I'm sure they did a tendon lengthening on this patient too. Probably Achilles. Yeah, yeah. triple hemisection. Oh boy. So here they got what's called a fish mouth. Sometimes you can do them mm -hmm. um, obliquely. Excuse me, obliquely. You can do them horizontally versus vertically. It doesn't make a difference. Right. I like the actually like the uh, vertical. The the way they did it here is because the vessels are more on the lateral side of the toe. So when you close these up, these tend to close up a little bit more successfully. In my brain theory, I don't know if the studies on that is, but. Either sense. which way. I mean, just anatomically, that's that's not a bad approach at all. Sometimes you'll do what's called a, a tennis racket. It's a very similar to this, and then you'll have a long arm. If you have to come back and take partial metatarsal or even like the marginal toes of this guy, this fifth toe most likely had what's called a, a tennis racket type of incision, elliptical or fish mouth incision with a long arm coming back and taking the metatarsal head. But sometimes you also are dealing with something that looks like this. I mean, you're trying to piece that graft of tissue. You're and see that those that at that point in the in your bottom two on the left, that's you got to go with a more proximal. I, I have these conversations. Yeah. Once we yeah. get to that third toe, I'm like, look, you're probably better off having the, a transmit. The hook'em horn sign. That's not a functional amputation. <laughs> yeah. So leaving someone with the big toe and the fourth and fifth toes. There's no point in doing that. You're much better off going more proximally or further up the foot and just giving them something like you've got in the in the left side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, I think those are almost invariably going to fail. Yeah. They just don't do well. Yeah, but, you know, a patient has a choice. We try to give them the best options. We try to explain to them. We're going to try to do everything in our power. When we're in there, when we're deciding on how much to resect, it's actually literally at the point where we're doing the incision. If we see bleeding on that skin yeah. edge, it's a good sign. If we don't see bleeding, I cannot bring blood flow to a site that doesn't have blood flow coming to it and expect it to heal. 
And we use TCOMs, the transcutaneous yeah. oximetry, to give us good amputation levels. So if, if you're smart, you're going to go in with that information so that you know reasonably reasonably accurately where where your best chance for healing is going to be. And so we don't do amputations on sites that just have absolutely no chance of healing. Yeah. That way we're, we're just more accurate. I had a patient, um, one of my patients, I've been seeing her for years. She had a ulcer on her heel. She is ischemic. She was on dialysis, you know, the, the works. Mm. And uh, the ulcer probed a bone. And I was like, look, I can do a partial calconectomy. But she had a history of other toe amputations too. So she was like, you know, multiple amputations in. And um, the the heel was ischemic, full you know, gangrene. And it was going from dry to more wet at this mm-hmm. point. I was like, look, I can do a partial calconectomy, but it's not going to be successful. Most likely the, the end all means will be a baloney amputation. And obviously, you know, when we tell someone that they're going to lose their limb, they're not happy. So... She, you know, she was like, look, I want to, you know, shop around. I was like, look, I don't take it personally. So a different, you know, podiatrist came in. She performed a partial cactinectomy twice mm-hmm. and, uh, yep, end up with a baloney amputation two weeks later. Yeah, I, we don't want to whittle. Yeah, I think our goal is never to do multiple amputations. It's to do a definitive one and let the patient get on with their lives. Yeah. So I think that's... That's a real, that needs to be an emphasis for limb salvage surgeons. And I think in our case, you and I are, are in agreement that that's, that's the route to go for sure. We don't always, we can't always do that. You know, there are times when we think we've got the vascular flow. Yeah. Vascular guys have done their job. We think a more distal lamp is going to work and, and that it doesn't end up working because they clot off or there's some other complication. So yeah, you know, our job is to save limbs, not to chop off limbs. Right. But, but an amputation like, the transmet on the left there, that's a success. Yeah, that's that a patient's success. going to be able to retain that limb most likely. That's the goal is we want a functional amputation that is going to allow the patient to continue to ambulate, yeah. to continue to walk and stand on that foot with maybe a toe filler, a special shoe with a toe filler. So that, that that's where that, that hook them horns one, it's just not a functional amp. <laughs> even the even the, go to the next page. Uh, even the three little piggies, yeah. you know, that's about... That is about the least number yeah. of toes I will allow without telling the patient, look, you need to transmit. We need to move on. Yeah, the problem with, so the reason we say that, you know, if it's just the toes, yeah, maybe it'll be, it won't be a problem. But most of these times these involve the metatarsals, right? So if you can imagine, if I'm taking the first metatarsal head, the fifth and fourth metatarsal head, and you're stuck with only the second and the third. third metatarsal yeah. head, all the pressure is going to yeah. be on those bones. They are not built to have that kind of right. peak pressure on them. Very difficult to offload. In the long run, they're probably going to ulcerate and or they're going to end up with horrible claw toes that are going to contribute to other wounds. It's just a nightmare. And so it shouldn't be considered a failure if, if you end up with a transmetatarsal amputation over multiple surgeries that could have been avoided. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's an important thing to consider if you find yourself in this situation. So recovery, we're doing our simple dressings. We'll have wound care come by, you know, home health, et cetera. If they're at the hospital, the nurses, and or we'll see them at the wound care center, do the hyperbarics and, and the local dressings and clean up, uh, you know, periodically. If need to, uh, a lot of times, like I said, I like to do packings for these. When I close them up, I leave, you know, 10% open roughly, and I'll leave that 10% open just for packing. We'll do some idoform packing or uh, hydrofera blue strips or what have you, 
to uh, hopefully Mesalt is another good yeah. one that works well. Yep. And then sometimes we'll do offloading depending on the location of the wound. So sometimes if the incision, and I bet you on this one, they probably have to offload also. We'll do what we can to offload total contact casting, cam boots, crow boots, uh, the works. A lot of times we'll have them in knee scooters or walkers to help keep the pressure off of it because we're doing everything in our power to get this to heal up. And if we keep on having tension along the incision site or the wound site, you're kind of fighting an uphill battle. And there's a point at which... It's a deformity problem. Yeah. And that's where you've got to make some decisions. So if it is possible to offload and get it closed and keep it closed, Brutal. that's great. Yeah. But and if we can do keep, custom orthotics and things that yeah, way. If you keep getting wounds in the same place over and over, you gotta go that, in. that's a mechanical problem. That needs deformity correction in, 100%. My, in my mind. That's pretty much it for her gangrene episode. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, it, it's uh, it's not a pleasant subject because it is it is scary for people but hopefully we've been able to show that we can navigate our way through that we use a a multi-specialty approach we do not take on these cases alone and uh, really does require a team approach 100 percent. very good well thank you dr hussein and that is uh, gangrene in a nutshell from the pod doctors we will see you next time Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.